Hello, I'm Peter Ayers, and you're listening to Stages, the podcast that converses... The reality of that eight-show-a-week week slog is really hard. When I start on a character, I have to draw them, and I'm, I'm not an artist. This is an effect built in myth and mystery. So you'd be sitting in this tiny little bio box with radiators all around you. Which was a funny thing because I don't think that play would have happened in that way if it wasn't at Griffin. You're a bit different to the other girls in this area. Yes, I thought, yes, I am. That was the days when they could smell an actor or a singer and think, oh, I've got six weeks. My sisters really taught me that, that I had to be versatile. This ostrich, pink ostrich feather sticking up out of my hair, out of this wig. My first career, as it were, was preparation for my second career. And her face was beaming. It was just beaming at me. I hadn't lost any of my passion or love for it, so it's been a joy to talk to you. Thank you very much. Hello, I'm Peter Ayers, and welcome to Stages, the podcast that converses with creatives about craft and career. London-born Tony Llewellyn-Jones graduated from the National Institute of Dramatic Art in 1971 and was subsequently invited to join the Melbourne Theatre Company. Over the next two years, Tony appeared in productions that included Tonight at 8.30, Mother Courage, The Cherry Orchard and An Ideal Husband, affording him the opportunity to perform alongside and watch up close the work of actors like Parslow, Thring, Withers and Innescourt. Tony's work has of course been seen further afield, as a regular fixture with companies that have included the Old Tote Theatre, Marion Street, Nimrod, Griffin, Belvoir, Bell Shakespeare and the Sydney Theatre Company. Tony served on the panel that engaged Richard Werrett as the inaugural artistic director of the Sydney Theatre Company and he received an AFI Best Supporting Actor nomination for his role in the celebrated cinema capture of Picnic at Hanging Rock. In 2016 he was cast in the 60th anniversary production of My Fair Lady as Colonel Hugh Pickering a role, it seems, he was destined to play. Tony Llewellyn-Jones is a true gentleman of the theatre, abundant with anecdote, considered opinion and tremendous passion for a career that has rewarded him many times over. You haven't always worked as an actor, I read. Uh, You were a producer on some Paul Cox films. Correct. How did that come about? You also knew Paul? Norman Kay is responsible for this. Man of Flowers. Norman Kay used to act, you know, he was a music teacher and he was the resident organist of Trinity College Chapel, University of Melbourne. But he taught music at Scotch College when he wasn't acting. But he was a a member of the um, St. Martin's Theatre Troupe, I think they called it. And he'd do one or two plays there. Paul Cox was the resident photographer for St. Martin's. Um, And uh, Norman was in a couple of... I was never in a play with him, but he did a couple of shows for Sumner. I can't remember what they were. But he saw me in something. And Paul was looking for a young fellow in his one of his early films... Illuminations, it was called. And I'd only discovered this later, but Norman recommended me. And I didn't really know Norman, as I say. Uh, 
This is before mobile phones, before faxes. And Norman got a message to me to ring this number. This is filmmaker, wants, might, might want you for a film. Oh, okay, yeah, sure, why not? 74. And so this is after the two years at MTC and after the 18 months at um, Nimrod. And I'd gone back to the MTC to do two plays for John. Mother Courage at the Prinny with Gloria Dawn. You were in that production? I was. I was. Let's, let's sidetrack for a minute. Tell me about Gloria Dawn. Oh. She used to wash her own smalls in a tiny basin. She would arrive terrifying, having terrified stage management long after the half hour, like it would be 10 minutes to go. She'd arrive, she'd walk on, no makeup, put stuff on, walk on, do it. Never stayed, never drank, never smoked, never socialized. Finish, gone. Come back, do it, that, that, that. A job. She was a electrifying. She was fantastic. Did you see her in A Hard God? I did, did. as well. Mm. Yep, of course. And in Gypsy, hello, I saw that. Susie Walker, Graham Rouse. And John Sumner, again, I don't know how this happened. He managed to get Joachim Tenshirt, was his name, who was a stage manager, then became a resident director of the Berliner Ensemble. He got him out from Germany to Melbourne to direct it. And he came with a facsimile edition of the original script, photocopied, with Mr. Brecht's handwritten notes in the margin. He would show it to us. On day one, just a tiny story of rehearsals, Malcolm Phillips was playing one of the soldiers. It's cold, they're waiting. For the mother to arrive and he asked him to in order to indicate the temperature as they wait he had to slap his upper arms with both hands three times only <laughs> only three Malcolm wanted to do it five or seven no 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 his English was pretty good but not that fluid and Malcolm refused to take the note at first. Then, of course, we all settled down. He said, why? Why can't I do that? No, 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 no. <laughs> toy, 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 you see. Yeah. Apart from anything. Yeah. Everything's in threes. We know this. The best things in life are three. Just made that up, Peter. <laughs> um, and, but we, what we did was we, we were just soldiers being sent to war, really. Um, there wasn't time, apart from his difficulty with the language, there wasn't time to discuss much. You just did as you were told. You come in there, you stand there, you deliver, and you go. As we get closer to opening night, and um, we were running it a bit, there was a little bit more flexibility for people like Frank Thring and Freddie Parslow and Jennifer Hagen and John Wood, because they were 
you know, gnashing their teeth and wanting to explore moments a bit, and they weren't allowed to, you see. Anyway, I was Iliff. Wendy Hughes and John Wood and I were the three children. I'll never forget it. It was just a wonderful experience, just wonderful. And I think it was pretty good. It was, if you, have you seen photographs? Oh, yes, yes. Oh, you have? Yeah, yeah. Oh, you must have, good. Yeah. Of course you have. And it, uh, it was, uh, you know, I think every item of costuming, the whole concept of the curtain, the wagon, there was a revolve, which was in the original production, before Sean Kenny. Yeah. Smallest one, just just for the purposes of to get the cart around. To get the cart around, that's all. <laughs> but um, another privilege, my God, was it ever? Well, to, 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 that's six degrees of separation. For, mm. to, six degrees of separation to Brecht, you know, having that director from the Berlin. Oh, absolutely, yeah, yeah. absolutely. Never happened again. He, he did, I, I think, the old tote brought out, who was that Romanian director that came out to direct the Lower Depths at the Drama Theatre right. with John Bell in it and a lot of the old tote regulars. Um, I think they were trying to match John Sumner having snatched this fellow from Berlin, but um, that didn't happen very often. Um, it should have happened. I, I would, dare I say this? I wish it happened more today. Yes. That they would bring somebody out from somewhere, just to liven up the place a bit and bring a new attitude to the text and to rehearsal. And I agree. They they do it with actors all the time. Uh, so it would be great to have some some creatives come out and in, it, infuse yeah. the industry. Yeah. Well, I think in many ways to give the board of the day. It's due the decision to um, appoint Jonathan Church, I think, came from that, uh, that sense of what perhaps Sydney needed, yeah. which is a completely, you know, objective outside eye with no obligations to anybody and no, you know, friends and relations. And it was a great shame that uh, he wasn't able to continue well, he, he couldn't. He was unable to fulfil his contract, shall we say? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Very controversial. Yeah, agreed, agreed. Well, you would have worked with quite a few overseas directors who who came to Australia to uh, infuse local actors with uh, the skill sets. Well, you know, only one other, Julie Andrews, Dame Julie, was the um, that I can remember was the only other one other than Joachim Tenshirt. But I saw some of the productions uh, directed by Tyrone Guthrie, of course. who, after all, worked in Melbourne and Sydney. John Sumner got him to, to Melbourne for the MTC, a, a production of Measure for Measure, I think, with his, his company then, Frank Thring, Fred Puzzler, uh, Patricia Connolly, uh, Jennifer Clare, that whole cohort and then he came up to I don't know was it the same year he came up came up to Sydney to direct a, a, a production of Oedipus Rex at the University of New South Wales in that big lecture theatre um, with Ruth Cracknell Ron Hadrick 
John Wood. I can see it now. And Drew Forsyth. Drew Forsyth. Mm. And they all had Cthurni. Poor bastards. What's, what's Cthurni? The, the Greek, the, 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 the step, the, the high-heeled boots. Because uh, they had masks as well, of course. To just make you larger than human size. You were gods, of course. Yeah. And uh, when was that? That was in the 70s. Yep. Early 70s, yeah. Yep. So um, I don't think Mr. Guthrie came back again. They were the only two I'm aware of. Although he was consulted on the design of the octagon in Perth and I think the York of the Seymour Centre, if not all the theatres in the Seymour Centre. So I think he came out again. Had some influence. Yeah, yeah. Did yeah. Sam, Sam Wanamaker ever come out? Do you know? I think he did. To raise money for the Globe on the South Bank. I think, he, I think he raised a lot of money in Australia, actually. Right. Well, God bless him. Yeah. What a wonderful achievement and legacy. Because, of course, the powers that be in London wanted to stop him, this interfering American. Oh, we're, we're, we've got Stratford. What do you, no, we, we've got no room. Why do you want to build a replica? That's shocking, appalling, yeah. stupid idea. Now, of course, it's one of the premier tourist sites of... London. Mm. Um, but back to your question. I mean, I remember a production of The Lower Depths directed by Livio Giuliani, I think is how you pronounce it. Old Turk production. John Bell was in it. And the, I think, Ron Hadrick. Enormous cast. I think it had a cast of about 20 or more at the drama theatre of the Opera House. And um, when John Bell and Richard Werrett were both working for the Old Tote, they, um, with I think Bill Redmond or possibly Robin Lovejoy, convinced William Gaskell to come out. Now, he directed a production of Measure for Measure. It was definitely a Shakespearean piece. I think it was measure for measure. Um, Philip Headley was brought out. I cannot remember what he directed, but again, for the old tote, in the dying days of the old tote. And the productions were good. I think casts enjoyed them. Subscribers enjoyed them. They did good box office. These directors are coming out blind also. They don't know any of the talent. They're, they're casting people on the merit that they see. Yep. Uh, well, I never auditioned for any of them. I wish I had, but um, everybody lined up to audition. Gladly. It, I mean, to meet Bill Gaskell and Philip Headley, even Livio, I don't know what his English was like or how, how well... I don't know who made that decision. You know, he was a renowned Romanian theatre maker who I'd not heard of. I don't think many of the rest of us had heard of him. But, um, and they selected people as they found them, as they saw them in the room for that 15 or 20 minutes. I remember stories of not hundreds, but dozens of people lining up and waiting their turn. 
as used to be the case. Yeah. Now, of course, you self-test if you don't get a phone call from somebody. Have you done many self-tests? There, yes, mainly for film and television, not theatre or, you know, commercials, television commercials. They're right. horrendous things to do. Yeah. If you haven't got somebody to shoot it for you, you just don't quite know what, what are they expecting, what do they want. And they're only really looking at your face and hearing you. They're not seeing you head to toe or getting your intriguing, engaging personality wash all over them. It's just, it's appalling. It is appalling. We, 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 we all hate doing it, but there's no option, yeah. it would seem. And you wonder who sits down and looks at them all? And do they look at the entire you know, length of, of recording that you have done? Or is it just, oh, yep, yeah, no, perhaps not what we're looking for, uh, yeah, just on the, based on the look, the physicality? Of You'd like to think they at least do that. Mm. I think it's a box-ticking exercise often mm. so that they can say whoever's complaining, well, we saw 30 people for that one role, but whether they saw 29 tests, who knows? But... Um, uh, that came about, uh, paradoxically enough, because we complained that there was a sense that auditions were not being held enough. And, uh, you know, the jobs were going to the friends of the director. But um, I, don't, I don't think many of the, uh, certainly the commercial theatre directors or producers, who insist on a self-test. You've got to go, you've got to show them you can sing and dance and or whatever's being asked of you. And um, a, but, gig, a gig like GP, which you did. Yes. Uh, what was it, the 90s, the 80s? At the 90s, thank yeah, you. Yeah. <laughs> Early 90s. <laughs> but there would have been a few recalls involved with that and working with the director, getting to know... Well, well the thing about GP, of course, was that there were... I don't know how many of them there were. There were half a dozen directors that did an episode every six weeks. You know, Julian Pringle and Brian Bell. They were all, I learned so much from them. And uh, Robert Klenner, all these people. Mainly male. Not like, there was, who was it? There was a lady director who was terrific. But um, they, they, no, they had a sort of team and uh, they, um, they would rotate. But uh, to let you into a little secret, I, I, I didn't audition for that role. I, it doesn't happen anymore. I got the phone call. I don't know who else they'd considered. I may have been third or fourth or sixth or seventh or, you know, for some reason the others they asked didn't want to do it. Because they wanted you to commit. That's another thing, of course, that in terms of television, at least, you, you, if, if you want to commit to, let's call it a soap, not that GP was a soap, but it was a regular program and you had to commit to 26 weeks or whatever it was. Mm. And, you, you know, it took a week for each episode to rehearse, to read, rehearse and shoot and often reshoot bits and uh, once, and it was a, it was a wonderful experience. But it was like being in a company, theatre company. Can we go back to that um, 
we touched on it briefly, the appointment of Jonathan Church at, yeah. the, at the Sydney Theatre Company, yes. who, as you've just been talking, he would have been a director that has come to Australia, not really knowing a lot of the talent, so having to audition and, and cast people uh, on their merit and their appropriateness for particular roles and plays and all that sort of thing. Do you think, uh, do you wish it did stay? Do you think that would have been a good appointment, a good for the Australian theatre or Sydney uh, theatre? Absolutely. And of course, he wasn't just a director; he was a, a, a producer. You know, he ran Chichester, and now runs the Theatre Royal in Bath, and takes shows into the West End. And and he, you know, he began not just he he was a stage man. He was an ASM, then an SM, but he his first job was as a sparky backstage. He was an electrician. He had done literally done it all. And um, I, I'd love to know how many people applied that year for, when they advertised internationally. Good, they don't do that anymore. And he applied and he was interviewed and uh, it, Mr. David Gonski was the chairman at the time. I can't remember who all the other members of the board were at that time, but he was flown out put up in a hotel probably five star why not and uh, he convinced them that he was the man for the job and I think he was he would have been the man for the job and he'd begun to make plans and pretty soon after arriving before his wife and family came to join him he was hitting the ground running and he commissioned Muriel's Wedding the musical almost first up. He was famous for having said in one of his interviews that he thought the Sydney Theatre Company should do a musical a year, one a year. It's good for everybody. As they did in uh, Wayne Harrison's. Indeed. Indeed, indeed, indeed. They both would have cheered that remark. But um, he, look, he was, he was charming. Uh, why did he want the job? I never, I've met him a few times, right. twice, yeah. only twice. I think he genuinely wanted to discover what a town like Sydney was like and how all these wonderful actors and designers and directors were getting their chops. What, you know, because, uh, you know, it, it, although it was, um, you know, 50, 10, 15 years ago, the UK was littered with Australian actors, as, as many as there are today. And uh, he would have seen them work. He would have seen Kate Blanchett on the stage. He would have seen... Sarah Snook and S S well, Brendan Cowles. Brendan, he, he would have seen, I'm sure. Sarah, I think, was still at NIDA. Was she, she hadn't quite emerged, maybe. Mm. I don't think she'd been in a play. She, he would have seen Tamsin Carroll. He would have been mystified by Barry Humphreys. He would certainly have known the work of Michael Blakemore and others. So um, he was self-effacing and charming, and yet you could tell there was steel under there. And he was he he was signing up for a minimum of five years. And as most of the artistic directors of the STC, anyway, you you tend to do two terms or three. I think they have. Do they have three-year terms or five-year terms? I can't remember. Really. And he wanted to live here. And um, 
So he decided it was better to leave and, and drop the whole thing. Damn shame. You would uh, know something about appointing an artistic director, especially oh, yes. at the Sydney Theatre Company, because um, you were there on the ground floor at the appointment of uh, Richard Wearett. I, I believe you were on the panel that interviewed him. Indeed. Indeed. How did that come about? I don't know. I got a phone call. I promise you, I got a phone call. And I was living in Melbourne at the time, and uh, I, 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 do, I, I did discover later that... I, John Clark and Elizabeth Butcher, who had been appointed to run um, an interim season, which was a wonderful idea and they should still be doing it occasionally. And every theatre company in Sydney was invited to put on a production at the Opera House. And, and in that year, a replacement um, for the artistic directorship of, at that time, had not yet been called the Sydney Theatre Company, the old tote, had been wound up. We can talk about that if you like. And uh, Jim McClelland and Gillis Krieger, who was a stockbroker but subscriber to the old tote and theatre addict, and I were appointed to find the first artistic director of the newly named Sydney Theatre Company. Although that took a few days to decide, to settle on, because it was, for a time, we were worried that STC, as of course it would become, in shorthand, would be confused with the Sydney Turf Club <laughs> and the standard telephone and cable company, who had a big sign, you know, they had a, <laughs> they had a, a warehouse and a, an administrative um, HQ somewhere in Waterloo, Alexandria, Rosebury, somewhere, with these enormous letters, STC, on the front of the building. And uh, anyway, I think Jim probably said, oh, don't be stupid, it's a theatre company, everybody can live with the sharing of initials. <laughs> and then we had, not, we didn't discuss it for very long, but we were worried about the font to put on the first document. First letterhead. Well, that was a big decision. Woof, woof, woof. And uh, it was, look, the responsibility was enormous and it was very difficult to decide. Took a, took the better part of a year. Did you have lots of candidates that put their head up? Yeah. Forgive me, the memory fails, but there, would, there were about 40 applicants. Great, great. From all over the country and overseas. A few from the UK. Um, I don't think we're betraying any secrets. One of them who was certainly shortlisted was Mr. Timothy West, who wanted to come out here and direct it and live in Sydney. He toured a lot with the pro he toured at least twice, I think, with the Prospect Company and got a sense of the town and whatever. And um, we interviewed. Um, we didn't interview all of them. There were also a few applicants from the US, from theatre departments of eminent universities. And uh, we didn't or, uh, interview anybody from the US. It was decided not to. It was not easy decision. I mean, otherwise you could have been, you know, the airfares and hotel... Yeah. 
accommodation would have cost a fortune. Yeah. Yeah. But yes, so there we were, and Mr. Justice McClelland was um, Chief Justice, I think it was called, of the Land and Environment Court. But the real power behind, the real, the kingmaker was Neville Rann. Apart from his love of the theatre and, and his friendship with Jim McClelland at the time, he had made the decision that the old tote had to be wound up and not kept afloat with yet another bailout from the state government. People forget the old tote was actually supported because it was well connected, you know, senior members of the law and business and banking and academe were on the board of the old tote and they fought for a long time and Neville stared them down. May I call him Neville? He became a friend, you know, Tony, you come in, come on in, boy. Yeah, we, got to, we want you to find an artistic director with Jim and Gillis. Get on with it, make a decision as quick as you can. And uh, I, of course, thought I was, you know, Christmas, didn't I? It was a hell of, hell of a responsibility. And there were a few more senior members of the profession that thought I was an up harder. Tony L. J. get this gig, how dare he? What does he think? Who does he know? What blah, blah, blah. And truly, I don't know how it happened. Anyway, they were, I got the call and uh, it, it, it was not easy to decide on Richard. Um, I, I think it's, it's fair to say that people in the biz know that it came down to a decision between John Bell and Richard Merritt, probably inevitably. Both lived in Sydney, both knew each other, both... Had started and run a company. Had, indeed. Mm. You know, Nimrod was popular and successful. And Anyway, the, the, what is important to remind ourselves is that one of the reasons that the tote, I think, uh, was wound up was because it it was broke just simply broke whether you argue that that was bad management or bad luck don't know we need a book somebody we need a phd for somebody but it was broke and neville had i think mr ran had bailed them out twice certainly once maybe the previous premier had bailed them out once. State Theatre Company, you know, it employs a lot of people, not just actors. And uh, has a, an honoured place at the Sydney Opera House. Has to put on, it's in the Articles of Association, not just at the Old Tote, but at the Opera House. The leading theatre company of the day must put on productions uh, in the drama theatre and what was then the, you know, the playhouse and the studio, doesn't matter which, but must do it. I think it's in the legislation. So it's important. And, um, but it was broke. And one of the things Mr. Rand said when the three of us all, when the four of us all met, with, by the way, Evan Williams, who was the head of the Department of the, 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 the Ministry of the Arts, 
um, he was in the room for that first meeting, and uh, they wanted they wanted it remembered by the three of us that uh, the the running of the company was as important as the artistic direction of it, not just the quality of the productions. Whoever made that decision, it had to be well run. Well, how do you ensure that? What questions do you ask of an artistic director to convince the premier of the day and his... And of course, he was also the minister for the arts. He wasn't just the premier. Let's not forget this matter. Uh, let's not forget that uh, Rupert Hamer in Melbourne was also the minister for the arts. Gough Whitlam was also Minister for the Arts. Paul Keating was also Minister for the Arts. So that uh, they had power and access to slush funds. They knew how to push, a pro not just a project, that's trivialising it, but to maintain the interest of the Cabinet and the bureaucracy in the value of the performing arts and the visual arts, all the arts. So Neville could, well, without Neville Rand, there'd be no wharf. Yeah, yeah. That was his decision, and he signed off on it, and it just made it happen. Because it was empty and full of pigeon shit. Yeah, found and by Elizabeth Butcher, wasn't it? Found by Elizabeth Butcher. Well, yes, she did find it. A few other people were around at the time, but she she convinced him and, um, and Edward Williams. Anyway, mm. it was important that Richard Werrett, in one of his subsequent interviews, because when it came down to it, we we'd spoke to John and Richard a few times before making the decision. And he, unsolicited, he said that he wanted Donald MacDonald to be his general manager because he was well aware um, that this was a factor, because it was in the press you know, about the, uh, the demise of the tote and where the money had gone and why wasn't it, you know, why wasn't it financially stable. And at the time, Donald MacDonald was working for Mr. Harry M. Miller and in the process of not just of running all Mr. Miller's productions, but uh, in the process of setting up a, what might have been, could have been, um, a daring and very successful business, CompuTicket. This is long before the so-called internet and mobile phones, and technologically this was whiz-bang. Because well, up, up until then you had to um, fill out a form and send your money away with the uh, yes. ticket request. Yes, <laughs> and um, go in and pick up your ticket. Or if you're a subscriber, they might post you your your wad of tickets. <laughs> but and uh, and this was important, an important factor actually. Um, uh, apart from giving giving us some idea of the sorts of plays he wanted to do and a musical every so often, if not once a year, and uh, how he saw the place of the STC in the city 
and uh, the, you know, the employment of creative souls. Um, there was a problem, however, because the, the timing was not that good. Um, Donald MacDonald resigned from Harry and Miller's employ and Mr. Miller ended up in jail for a scheme where he was defrauding people and it was all very complicated. And uh, Donald was connected, you see, so he was sort of tainted. He, he resigned in time, shall we say. But um, Mr. Ran uh, needed to be absolutely sure that Mr. MacDonald was clean, clean enough, so that before the appointment could be announced, this had to be cleared. So there was a, an in-house inquiry about the, um, the appropriateness of, of, of the appointment. Um, so in a way, there was a double appointment going on there, you see. Yes. Not any other applicant had thought of that, had thought of the importance of the financial health of the new company and how to establish it and maintain it. And Richard and Donald ultimately made that clear and, and satisfied the Minister for the Arts and the Premier, and so they were appointed. Richard was appointed. And that's how it happened. That is how it happened. But it was, it, it, in the meantime, <clears throat> Sydney got productions from the Q and the Ensemble and the Old Toad and NIDA, <clears throat> excuse me, and um, the Independent and the Marion Street. They all put on a production at the Drama Theatre, I think, or maybe there were a couple at the Playhouse, can't remember. It's in the files, folks. <laughs> and uh, it was an exciting time. And um, so Richard had... Uh, oh, the other factor, of course, was giving Richard Ware enough time, making his appointment early enough, so that he had enough time to uh, select and, uh, and start preparing for his first season. With a subscription base, it was it was uh, it was tricky, delicate times, very complicated. Learning on the job for a lot of people. Learning on the job. Um, the first office of the SDC was in a building at the bottom end of South Darling Street, down near Woolloomooloo. And I always remember a room was found for, and forgive me, I've forgotten her name, the box office manager from the Parade Theatre was kept on to start the first subscription season. She had shoeboxes, 52 weeks of shoeboxes, on the floor of this temporary setting full of little tickets, different coloured tickets that were printed, mainly for the drama theatre, I think. Can you believe it? So it was all done, and she, of course, had a mind like a steel trap. Peggy somebody, Shirley, Shirley somebody. Forgive me, Shirl. And um, the year after that, it didn't become electronic overnight, but it got more efficient 
And now look, we've got, you know, a, a thriving company. And as all the best artistic directors achieve, you know, a mixed bag from time to time. But it's thriving. They employ a lot of people. Some people say one or two too many in administration. Perhaps a few more actors. But you'd expect me to say that. So Paul Cox. Paul Cox. Well, so I ring him up. And uh, yes, and uh, you know, I said, "Well, I, I'm I'm in I'm in a, I'm in plays at the MTC. I, you know, I have to. Um, we rehearse, uh, you know, from ten till five, whatever it was, and um, at night I'm in plays. And when are you hoping to film this?" He said, "Oh, we, we'll film it. We don't have a shooting schedule yet, but we're going to film it in bits and pieces over many weeks. So I'm sure we can accommodate you. We'll film on Sundays." We'll film, film at dawn. We'll film after dark. Whatever. Okay. Oh, sounds great. Love to. Love to meet you. Have you got a script? No, I was working on the script. Oh, okay. Uh, synopsis, what, what, what roughly is it to be about? And he told me, he said something like, well, it's about uh, a, a, a man and a woman who go to bed and dream. And they wake up in the morning, and it's all been a dream. Oh, well, that's very interesting, Mr. Cox. Really? Well, he said, look, I'll get you a script as soon as possible, but it won't be ready for a while. Now, I, now Norman, who I did not know very well. Oh, then I said, uh, he said, um, where do you live? I said, well, at the time I was living in Carlton. I, he said, um, I live in Paran. I did not know where Paran was, but I knew it was somewhere near St Kilda. Now, to me, St Kilda was, you know, prostitutes, heroin, all-night bars, dangerous territory. You just don't go there. You know, I was a bit wet behind the ears. And I promise you, I thought this was porn. I thought he was going to make some porn. And I thought, fuck it, why not? Let us see what this actually leads to. I don't mind if he pays me something, do a bit of porn. Not really knowing what that might mean, not really. A bit naive still. Anyway, so I, t I turn up at his house one day with Norman. Um, did I have a car then? I got a river. I think Norman took me. And we walk into this place, which was because Paul was still at that time uh, a lecturer in photography and cinematography at Paran Tech, that later became, you know, the Paran campus of Victoria University. And he was well travelled and a collector of antiques and particularly primitive art, sculptures, paint, batik paintings. Um, wooden carvings, pots, all that. It was dark. And, and he had a dark room where he used to produce all his stills. And I was just, I'd never been in any, anywhere like it. It was like a gallery, like an ethnic gallery, which is what it was in many ways. So we sit down, he's got a script. It's still really not finished, but you know, it's like this, you know, it's about 10 pages or something. It was. It was his first feature, just 
you know, the definition of a feature back then was it had to be 70 plus minutes. And it was 70 minutes, that's what it was. It was a bit too long on the final product anyway, but anyway. So some weeks later we start filming at odd hours all across Melbourne, including a place called Newstead, which is up near Malden. Do you know it? Oh, indeed, indeed. I, <coughs> I grew up near there. Get away. In a place called Maryborough. I Maryborough. Yes. Good heavens. Well, one day, and I knew I should never have done it, it was um, a weekday, and much ado about nothing, which I've now been in three times, three different roles. There's a lot to do about nothing then. I just made that up, do you like it? I do. Very good. Very good. And it was a Monday or a Tuesday or Wednesday, I can't remember what it was. And we're filming in Newstead, in a church, in a laneway, and across a field, and I don't know what all. Anyway, I said to, um, and it was winter, mid-year, middle of the year, freezing. Would be, yeah. And at about five o'clock, or six, five o'clock, I said, Paul, I've, I've got to go, I've got a show at Russell Street. I'm an hour and a half away, an hour away, yeah. whatever it was. <clears throat> We're just gonna finish this, We're just gonna finish this. there's a horse, and you've gotta come from over there, we've got all these extras, and losing light. Don't bother me. Furious temper he had. I said, all right. I said, but I'll have to leave at six, I really will. And they were running out of light anyway. It was, you know, winter. So we finish, and I had a little car by then. And I leave, worried that I wouldn't make the half. I'm halfway to Melbourne. On the, before you hit the, high, the Calder Highway, the road is sealed, or back then, but not the edges. I have a car, I skid, I have a car accident. Oh. I tumble and turn in my little car, a Honda, little Honda, and I end up on the roof in the gutter by the side of the road. I thought, I'm fucked now. I've managed to get out of the car, it didn't burst into flames or anything, it seemed, it was just on its roof. Nowhere, in the middle of, might as well have been nowhere. Nobody coming, nobody going. It's cold, it's dark, it's before mobile phones, there's, there's, there's no telephone box for miles. What am I gonna do? I waited. This is absolutely true story. Car comes along, sees what's happened, he stops. You all right? Yes, I'm fine. Listen, now you won't believe this, I've got to be at the Russell Street Theatre and it's now seven o'clock, whatever it was. He said, you're kidding. I said, he said, I'm a subscriber to the Melbourne Theatre Company. I'm going to see Much Ado About Nothing next week. I said, I'm in Much Ado About Nothing. You've got to have me there. He said, sure. Come along. I said, thank God. Thank you so much. He dropped me at the stage door. I couldn't ring the stage manager. They were all in costume waiting. I got there at about 10 minutes to eight. The shows back then began at eight. 
and Simon Silvers came up to me with a tumbler of a terrible brandy that they all used to drink, the cheap one. He said, have this. Because all that happened to me was that I cut my forehead, a little cut just there. That's all that happened, which he could see. He could see I was shaking and quick, do this. So I did. Bang. Got into my Claudio's costume. Was there on cue. Shaking. I, I don't know how I got through it. Fine. And I met that man and his wife the next week. They left me a note. I'm the one that took you to the, please, can we go out for a drink? We did. The following week. Unbelievable. Unbelievable. Wow. That's a great, great scene in the movie when they did the movie of your life. Ha. <laughs> but um, yeah, anyway, yeah. so, and the illuminations went on to be seen at film festivals and nowhere else. And Paul became a good friend, a really good friend. And we made, we set up a company together and Norman was in a lot of the films. And we ended up, um, well, we didn't always agree, slightly tempestuous from time to time, but uh, I learned a lot from Paul and I, I miss him a lot and he's dead and gone. And the building that we bought together with our Chinese doctor, we shared a Chinese doctor who's still alive. We bought a building in Albert Park, it's now a demolished oh, wow. block of apartments, it's going up as we speak. Yeah. But um, yes, Paul, he got the dreaded liver cancer. Very sad. There are many iconic Australian films. We could list them off now, but, <clears throat> but one of the most iconic is Picnic at Hanging Rock. Yes. It must be nice to be a part of that legacy. Absolutely. Uh, a, a role in which you were nominated for a Best Actor in a Supporting Role at the AFIs. Why? Well, you were obviously very good. Somebody's opinion. I, I was so touched. I mean, it, forgive me, and forgive me, Peter Weir and Cliff Green. It's a tiny role. It, he, he doesn't, he's there a bit, but uh, it was a joyous, joyous time. Another one, another joyous time. I mean, hello, you know, we discover Tom in bed with Jackie Weaver. So he, that's how we first meet Tom. The bell goes at the school, he has to jump, he's, he shouldn't be there. Jumps out of bed and goes, you know, goes gardening. And we had a few weeks in uh, Clare, north of Adelaide, filming in the, um, the Downer family seat, which is where it was, and uh, a very well selected location, I think. Some hair splitters have said they'd never really believed that it was in the light or something, or the color of the stonework. They didn't believe that the school was anywhere near Hanging Rock itself. Right. But I thought that was, to my eyes, perfectly convincing. Yeah. But it was, it was really nice to meet um, Peter. Peter who used to go to the Nimrod quite a lot. I always remember seeing him there um, with Wendy. I never really got to know him that well then, not until it was cast. But um, um, a few people came from Sydney to appear in it, like, like Jackie Weaver, Martin Vaughan, 
And of course, we met Rachel Roberts, didn't we? Didn't we? Yeah. Well, Spent the headmistress. Yes, yes. And um, she was full of stories. She'd um, finished with Rex Harrison by then, I guess. Yes. Yeah. Oh, yes. I think sometime before she was on, she had another husband or boyfriend by then. But uh, she didn't socialise that much. But a couple of nights she had us round to her hotel room. Most of us stayed in a motel in Clare. She was in a different motel. And Kim Dalton, I don't know if that name rings a bell, he ended up the head of Screen Australia briefly. He was a second assistant director. He used to drive us around everywhere. Because, you know, the, the location was some way away from Clare Township. The McElroys, of course. Hal. Hal and Jim. And at the Melbourne Hilton, on the night of the AFI Awards, when it was announced that Picnic had won, however many categories it won in, more than one, wasn't it? Best film, best music, best directions, whatever it was. Yep. Um, the McElroys, they won't mind me telling you the story, got up to accept their awards and they were on the verge of about to make their acceptance speeches when from down the back, Pat Lovell stands up and says, hey, hang on, I was one of the producers, I introduced Cliff Green to you, I wait for me. So they did, they had to. So the three of them accepted the award together and had their picture taken together. But Mr. And, uh, the, the Messrs. McElroy should have waited for Pat. She had, they, they should have known, I don't know, I don't know, they must have known she was there. Yeah, yeah. There was a bit of tension. And, um, yeah, well, again, you know, I don't know how it happened, it happened. It was a wonderful experience, wonderful. Thrilled to be in it. Thrilled to be in it. Was that the first time you met Jackie Weaver? No, because she was in The Seagull at the Nimrod. And Pat, Pat was briefly... Um, she, had a, she was not called casting director, but she, was, she, was, she, was, she did publicity or marketing for Nimrod. And she, in fact, I think that's how I got it, really. And she recommended me to Peter, although Peter had been to see the seagull. You never know who's watching, do you? No, you when know. You, when you do your job. Absolutely, that's right. Yeah, yeah. When you least expect it, you know, that old cliche, when you meet, even if it's a friend or a family, you don't know who's in. Oh, you didn't come tonight, did you? Oh, I was not on to it tonight. Oh, you know, you go through that palaver. You've got to be on your toes every night, really. Yeah. Well, every job is an audition for somebody <coughs> else, isn't it? Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. Exactly. Did, yeah. Did you make a habit of reading reviews during your career? Yes, of course. Yeah. We used to go to the top of Flinders Street at, you know, midnight to read Kipax. Of course you did. Because we never went to bed before midnight. Well, one of the country's great reviewers, um, Harry Kipax. I dip into his collected reviews, yeah. the currency press, often, yeah. just to get a sense of what he got to say about whatever. Oh, absolutely. And I met him a few times. Yeah. I liked him a lot. He was um, 
I don't think I always agreed with him, but I, I loved how he called you Mr. or Miss. Didn't matter who you were. Um, I think he was obviously erudite. And, well, I haven't seen, you know, he was the leader writer for the Herald. I mean, he, he would have been editor for a while and, um, you know, he'd been, I don't think he ever wrote about sport or yeah. shipping, yeah, yeah. but he'd done it all. It's, yeah. And he'd seen it all. He knew Neville Cardus. He knew um, Tynan. He was, he was our equivalent. Yeah. He really was. And of course, print media's gone the way of mobile phones, but um, they don't get enough space to this day. We still give, we give more space to film and television and sport than the theatre. It's not right. No. People actually want to read it. Apart from the social history and the responsibility to the reader, it's, it's part of the duty of the major daily. You know, why, why it's so depressing. So depressing. But, you know, every so often John Shand might be given 500 words, not 400 words, but somebody decides that the photograph is more important than the text. Yeah. So, you, you, you know, after the first few paragraphs, you know he, he, he's not able to say what he wants to say. Or he has said it, and it's just been trimmed by a sub in New Zealand. Yeah. Uh, Things ain't what they used to be. Are you superstitious in the theatre? Do you know, I think I am. It depends on the cast. Depends how many others are superstitious. Certainly about whistling. Right. Oh, yes. Yep. Out. <laughs> Run around the building three times. <laughs> or there's three again. Um, it's, it, it's little things, you know. It's more personal rather than... Because uh, I suppose it's different in somewhere like Belvoir where you have a communal uh, uh, dressing room. But, you know, at, at, the, at the Packer or even at the Wharf, it's sort of either a single dressing room or twos or threes, you know. So you, there's not that, sen that collegiate sense in my recent experience, shall we say. Yeah. Um, the Parramatta Riverside have big dressing rooms for the big shows, so the, the, so there is a sense that you're in it together, but you're not apart. Um, there is something about that, all preparing together and sort of having that sort of communal chat. I think it's terrific. I think it's actually very important. Yeah. Even if there's somebody in the group that not everybody likes or doesn't like you or you know like that. you just get on with it you do you end up you just don't have to send them christmas cards for the rest of your life <laughs> you, it's fine it's a job but um don't make too much noise don't whistle don't be late and talk about it we like talking talk about it so, sorry i trod on your cue you know sorry i was late Sorry, I fucked that up tonight. Sorry, you know. Yeah. Well, you might, you know, if if the production has got its problems, you 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 cling to each other, you know. And some there's a you know, into the woods. Can you imagine what the dressing rooms were like? Can you imagine? Yeah. 
but they got through it and they did it. It's a memorable, a great production. Yeah. yeah. Now, just to the listener, we were off mic. We were talking about the the uh, famous Sydney Theatre Company production of Into the Woods, ah. uh, as opposed to the recent Belvoir production, yeah. which I didn't see. Didn't you? I couldn't see it. I was away, mm. but I heard. It was very good. I heard. Yeah. I saw a Kambala production, which was pretty damn good, yeah. a couple of years ago. Yeah. A neighbour where we live, her, their daughter was in it. Played a cow. She was a very good cow. We've got to start somewhere. Indeed. <laughs> Indeed. Tony, if you weren't working in the theatre, what do you think you'd be doing? I'd like to teach. I'm ready to teach now, actually. I'd love to teach. I almost did for a while. Well, Tony Knight got me into NIDA for a couple of chats, really. But I directed a production of Everyman as a rehearsal room, yeah. studio production. Tights, you know, sort of thing. Poor bastards, what I put them through. But it was very, very interesting. Yeah, I, I think I'm ready. I'd, I'd love to, would, they don't have to be professionals or budding professionals, neither, schools, secondary schools. I would, I would love to talk, I, I want to know what they think about the theatre, what they think about the printed word, the spoken word, gestures, um, stagecraft, relating to each other. Because sometimes I see things, and it's, it's terrible to say this, but I, I get disappointed that somebody's doing something that they need not do. They're not helping themselves, and they're not helping the show. They're not helping the playwright. Don't do that. Yeah. I, I, I want to jump out of my seat and say, just stand still. Don't point. That, the, the delivery of that line really could have been different. Could you just do it again? Do it, just do it for me. I'll, I'll try and convince you that that's better. Not a question, in my opinion. It's the, the bugbear of being a practitioner, isn't it? You, you, it's very rare that you can <coughs> go to the theatre and just enjoy it. I mean, you're constantly analysing and I know. critiquing in your head. I know. Yeah. I haven't seen Tina yet, but... I'm told there's no time to do that, just go with it. You see something like Tina, or maybe even My Fair Lady, um, and you're just in awe of what's happening. Did you, ever, did you see Caroline or Change at the Hayes? Yes, absolutely, it was fantastic. Well, I'd love to have seen that. You were in it. I know, I know. I, <laughs> But, but to I, see I it know, as, as a piece of theatre, yeah. Yes. I mean, Ella Noah was just gobsmacking. Yeah. She was yeah. on a, from a mountaintop delivering a performance. I'll never forget. Yeah. And, you know, uh, uh, dare I say it, uh, Mitchell cast it extremely well. Oh, yeah. yeah. And we all got on and... And that old magic of theatre, you know, you suspend uh, just, your disbelief when you go to the theatre. We have singing washing machines. And, exactly. Yeah. Oh, the moon. Yeah. Ruva Ungenwa was the moon. Yeah. And um, Amy Hack, Andrew Cutcliffe. Crikey, what a crowd. Elijah, Elijah, Elijah yeah. Williams. Yeah. 
and um, um, yeah, you from day one. I don't know the first the table read. You sort of something is in the air. This is going to be something. going to be special. Yeah. You kind of know it. But um, there's so much on. I'm, uh, I'm seeing Ernest. I've seen Dismissal twice. Um, fantastic. But you have a lovely cameo in the Dismissal, don't you? Yes, I, I do. heard your voice. Did you? Yeah. They paid me far too well for that. <laughs> uh, Two <I'm>... tickets. <laughs> um, no, I got... You, you need to go again. I will. Because the best things in life are three. <laughs> <laughs> Very good. No, I, I intend to see it again because they've been tweaking it. They've been working at it. Yeah. And um, in fact, I went with Elijah Williams last week because we're both friendly with Andrew who's a wonderful Malcolm Fraser. Yeah. And I have to see my old tutor, Peter Carroll, yeah. again. Yeah. You see, Peter would, I, I, I don't think we mentioned, he was, the, he was the voice tutor at NIDA in 1970. He then left. And John Bell was the acting tutor. And in the second year, um, Alexander Hay became the acting tutor director of acting whatever he was called and who then taught voice I can't remember P Peter was only there a year who was it I can't remember so I've known Peter for that long crikey Tamsin and Hilary and Lucy and Jenny Lovell Pat Lovell's daughter all used to play together at Nimrod I can see them now, coming back from school and yelling and screaming. Now, now look, now look. Yeah. And then there's another generation after them. Absolutely, yeah, indeed. It goes on. Indeed. Tony Llewellyn-Jones, it has been a delight. Oh, thank Peter, you. thank you for the opportunity. All good things must come to an end. I could chat forever, but um, no, we must finish up. We must. Thank you. Bye-bye. I relished the conversations with artists like Tony, such passion for the craft, such extensive credits and anecdote, and the preservation of such vital histories. Thank you, Tony Llewellyn-Jones, for a splendid chat. Thanks for joining us in this episode. Please check out all of the episodes featured in the podcast by visiting the website www.stagespodcast.com.au. You can also follow us on socials, Instagram and Facebook. And of course, subscribe to the podcast through Apple Podcasts or Spotify. I'm Peter Ayers. Keep well, keep warm, stay safe. And I'll catch you next time where, you know where, on Stages. Thank you.